Hello, it's Anthony Chadwick from the webinar Vet, welcoming you to another episode of Vet Chat, the UK's number one veterinary podcast. And I'm really fortunate today to have Mark Johnson on the line, who's going to be talking to us about a not-for-profit project that he's running called Vets in Mind. Mark, as many of you will know, is the managing director of VetStream, um, obviously a veterinary surgeon as well. So welcome, Mark, and thanks so much for agreeing to come on the podcast. It's a pleasure, and it's really good to be here, Anthony. Thanks, Mark. Um, Perhaps tell us a little bit before we start, because obviously we all know you as VetStream MD, but in in a previous life, you were, as, as is often said, a proper vet. We did, both of us, touch animals for quite a long time. I mean, you were uh, in equine practice for a good length of time and then obviously did some academic study. So perhaps tell us a little bit yeah. about your your backstory, your background. Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, having left Cambridge, I was lucky enough to go into equine practice in Kent in first opinion work um, in Ashford and then quickly uh, joined, had an opportunity to go to Rossdale's in Newmarket. Um, and I became more and more closely uh, involved in supporting Tim Greet, the main surgeon, who did not have an anaesthetist-focused uh, uh, clinician. And so I quickly became his um, assistant and quickly took an interest in an area that terrified the living daylights out of me called anaesthesia and critical care, mainly because I didn't think I knew very much about it quickly gained a lot of experience and the more cases we did, the more one learnt and, um, and, and appreciated uh, the opportunity of, of doing uh, the anaesthesia, but it, became, it was a lot of uh, work during the day and a lot of out of hours um, and uh, the post-op care of some of the uh, acute abdomens, colics um, and other cases that needed support from post-operative myopathy and other things. Um, yeah, so I, I did that and, and then quite a lot of racing work, first opinion racing work and, and helped Tim with his referral caseload. I remember when I was a student, my elective was in um, emergency uh, equine medicine, with, well, equine surgery with Barry Edwards, which was a huge privilege because, of course, he was such a fantastic surgeon. But it was yeah. It was very long hours and that was only for three weeks. And I would imagine if you were doing that for a number of years, it would um, it would wear you down a bit, which I think is partly where you've you've come to the idea of vets in mind because of your own experience of, of just struggling with a really big workload. And we can do that for a certain length of time, particularly when we're young. But at some point, you can talk about resilience, but you can then break, can't you, and... and burnout can happen and I think that was something you were wise enough to notice that the burnout was potentially coming and that was why you decided to move in partly if I'm getting this right into into academia and to do a PhD. Yeah I I basically was hating what I was doing and would find every excuse not to be um, you know in the practice um, once, if I was not doing a, a, a sort of clinical um, uh, surgical case or critical care, I would, you know, I just loathed it. And I just thought this is ridiculous. I spent all of this time, energy, efforts coming to train. And I was in one of the best practices in, in the country, um, do, you know, working at the top level and just loathing it. And I didn't realize because you sometimes just don't. And a lot of the symptoms that you experience, you just put down to being tired and, you know, 
nothing much more than that. But actually, I was slipping down a, a slope um, and getting more and more dissatisfied, more and more frustrated, probably harder and harder to work with. And I didn't really realize what was happening. And I finally got to, to the point where I just thought, you know what, I just can't do this anymore. I've got to, um, and, and I didn't know what it was. I just thought I've got to be done here. And I was able to find, um, before I had any form of diagnosis, um, realization that actually I needed to escape from that clinical caseload, that relentless 24 yeah. seven, um, and you can't leave new market and you can be interrupted any time of day or night stuff without having any outside interests um, with two relatively young children at the time um, and an understanding wife, um, I realized I had to change direction and I was already doing, um, as well as my clinical work, uh, the confidential inquiry into perioperative equine fatalities, um, an epidemiological study, which I now know is uh, what it was, didn't at the time. Um, epidemiology seems to have come, um, come the moment. Um, and I realized that actually that could be an escape route um, that would enable me to still do um, and you know, use my brain veterinary training, um, but actually not have to do this um, relentless um, night work and then suffer the, um, the, the, um, the pain and, and, and challenges of people wanting you to look at 15 lame horses the next day, as well as doing all that stuff at night and not have a break and so on and so on. It, I just, I saw an opportunity to change um, then and, and managed to move away. Um, and at the same time, it was quite interesting. My mother came to stay with me and see practice effectively with me. Um, and uh, my father had taken his life when I was 10 uh, for no real reason that we could ascertain. Um, and uh, that's the backstory. And then she kept, came around and saw me anesthetizing and saw the horses and was so, you know, um, proud of what I was doing and all this sort of thing. Um, and uh, as she said, you know, you don't seem sort of fully engaged with this and happy. And I said, well, no, mum, I'm frankly not. I'm absolutely hating what I'm doing. I'm, I don't think I'm particularly good at it anymore. I'm grumpy. I'm difficult. Um, I don't, I really don't think I can do this for another 30 years. Um, and I think I'm going to have to change. And I remember my mum saying to me, oh, but darling, what am I going to say to all my friends in at cocktail parties and, and lunch parties and things in Gloucestershire? And I said, mum, I don't really give a damn. Uh, this mm. is my life. Um, if I don't make a change, I'm not sure I'm going to be here in a couple of years' time. And yeah. that sort of hit home. It was a pretty unfair thing for me to have said. However, it was the truth. And um, I needed to change direction very significantly mm. um, and luckily found an escape route. And our profession is capable um, of providing lots of different routes for us. And so if you are in a place, any of the listeners are in a place when they just think this isn't for me, don't give up on the profession, please. Um, explore other avenues. There are lots of different avenues in our profession um, and uh, to use our clinical skills and our training um, and uh, explore those. They may not be so obvious to start with, but they're there for us. And um, we must not um, discard our training and find ourselves going into other areas unless they're really more suited to us. And, and frankly, that was one of the things that made me realize it. Alan and Vicky Robinson had a, a personality profile that I did. Um, and I found that I was um, a creator um, as a personality type. Um, and the very last thing a creator needs is to do repeated 
um, uh, uh, exercises and, and activity time after time. So seeing 15 lame horses in a day or three or four um, uh, anest general anesthesias and things was doing my head in. Um, whereas I normally were very happy and in, in my flow when I'm meeting new people, coming up with new ideas and working on them. So I realized my personality type, oops, was not suited to the type of practice I was in and so needed to change direction. Mm. And I think it's, it's worth pointing out, you know, to younger listeners that at that stage, most vets did their own on call. So you could actually be up all night and still have to work the next day. So actually, yep. we are moving in the right direction and the hours have definitely shortened over the last 20 years. Uh, but I think also sometimes it might be a simpler change as moving to another practice because I had two years at the beginning which weren't very good. You know, I didn't settle into practice. I think sometimes the the vets weren't supportive enough of the new graduates. And sometimes you just have to find the right practice to be in. And some people find that immediately. Some people take some time. Uh, but some people can't, you know, you can stay in clinical practice, but you can also move out. And it's not a success or a failure if you move out of clinical practice. It's finding the right niche for you. Also with your personality type, as you've said, I mean, obviously, Alan and I um, began uh, the talent dynamic tests at the same time and brought that into the, the profession. I think it's been a really great tool it for is. vets to recognize. I did the same test myself, you know, at the beginning of starting webinar vet and realized that I was a star and therefore I like to shine my light on other people. Um, but I also similarly um, really enjoyed uh, consulting because when you are consulting, you are presenting and, you know, being able to um, show people what was going on to educate people was very much part of, of what I like to do. I like people as well as animals. And I think if we like people and animals, it, the job clinically is a lot easier because we are very front facing, public facing, aren't we? Uh, you know, when we're in clinic. Yeah. So um, no, that's really powerful. And obviously post PhD, um, you you began to get more involved with VetStream that was setting up then as well, wasn't it? Did the PhD happen at Cambridge, Mark, or where did yep. you do your PhD? Yeah, I, I was based at Cambridge. Um, it started actually as a sort of flag of convenience at the Animal Health Trust, the now sadly gone Animal Health Trust, with my uh, supervisor, Polly Taylor, but she um, I moved across to Cambridge with, with being based there, which was nice to go back to Cambridge. Um, and... Yeah, I quickly thought um, that I was, again, in the wrong place. Um, and again, this is lesson number two, is you may um, uh, need to go and look for another opportunity that, that's going to suit you better doing data analysis. I'm, I'm not a numerate um, mathematical brain. Um, uh, to your point, I'm a, I'm a creator and I like ideas and I'm visual. And so I suddenly realized I was messing around with biostatistics, not understanding as much as I could. And James Wood was so helpful in get, enabling me to get to the end of my um, PhD and get that written up properly. I had to rewrite it twice um, and redo the analysis with his help. Um, and I realized that actually I can't be doing this for the rest of my life. Epidemiology is an emerging area, but this isn't for me. But so what I realized was one of the things that I was doing in the PhD in, in the confidential inquiry that I was running at 147 clinics around the world giving me their data, I was converting that into information and results. 
and feeding that back into um, their, them in practice. And um, if you look up any of the papers and things, we were able to identify some really surprising risk factors, which I probably shouldn't go into now, but um, because one had done that analysis properly with, um, and then I realized, hmm, if I'm not gonna be an academic and I'm not suited for that, I'm not suited for practice, why don't I look a little bit more into providing information back into practice? I'd already met John Greve and seen the VetStream project and his amazing foresight in believing that we should, back in 1995, have a handheld device that would provide all the information that a vet would need from satellite. Yeah. Um, you know, he was so far-sighted. And I thought, hmm, yeah. maybe um, that would be a, a way of doing and keeping my veterinary connections, but also doing things um, in a different way for the benefit of the profession and therefore for the, um, the pet-owning, animal-owning public. So I did join VetStream, re helped raise the funding, and have been pretty much involved ever since. And I basically am a content squirrel, um, and I go looking for content and try and work out how we can make it work together um, and provide that for clinical benefit of the profession um, uh, point of care information and uh, whether it's on diseases or treatments or diagnostic trees of mm. all of the domestic species that we look after. And that was fine and good. But actually, because of my experience of burnout, because my dad had taken his life when I was younger, I suddenly started you know, listening to all of the uh, reports of mental ill health in our profession and thought, I wonder whether I could do something in relation to that. And so I started looking for information on mental health. This was just before COVID started striking um, and looking at, um, you know, the effects of self-harming, of sleep disorders, of eating disorders, um, and knowing that a number of colleagues and friends within the profession and students were suffering this and thought, we've got to signpost people to places where they can have credible information, not just nonsense and foo-foo and uh, crazy ideas, but proper evidenced uh, information. And so I started collecting all of this together and realized that actually it would be very helpful if that was contained in one's mobile phone because it's private. A desktop, a screen, a laptop is not private. People can walk past you and see what you're looking at. And I wanted to try and have something that would sit on a mobile phone and be private so I could sit in the, the loo, in my car, on an airplane, whatever it is, train and actually find out more about what I was experiencing. So the idea of the app came as a resource center um, initially. Um, it's got other elements which we'll come to, I'm sure, in this conversation. But that was the idea. Where can we signpost people to get information that may be a TED talk on um, uh, a sleep disorder or cyberbullying or whatever else it might be, but proper credible sources? Yeah, and I think this is so important, Mark. I know when um, the uh, Mind Matters initiative was launched by Lizzie, I, I said to her, you know, we need to make this also practical because an initiative is great, but sometimes it doesn't go anywhere. And we did uh, an eight-week course with the Royal College on, on mindfulness, obviously one of the tools that you can use. It's not the only one. It's really interesting when people um, use it, they either say, oh, this is really great, or oh, I don't know what it's all about. Um, and actually, post doing that, the number of people who came up to me at conferences and would say, you know, the clinical material you produce is great, but actually, 
this has helped to change my life. I'm being more uh, attentive. When I go on holiday, I can relax more. I'm not shouting at my nurses. So it's such an important area um, because we know of these problems that you've, you've talked about of depression, you know, going to even worse, more catastrophic things than that. So it, it is really important. And I think it's realizing with all of these things that not one thing is going to be the answer, but to have several resources. So we have things like the Mind Matters Initiative. We have Vet Life. Um, obviously, Vets in Mind as well. I think part of the problem is that we don't accept mental illness, although it's becoming more acceptable. You know, if you break a leg, you go to accidents and emergency, it gets sorted out. The NHS is still struggling how to cope with acute mental trauma as well, isn't it? I think it is. But at the same time, I think almost more significantly is we as members of the veterinary profession, and by that I'm meaning not just veterinarians, um, but also the nurses and everyone involved, the kennel guys, the reception people, we have to recognise where we are on our journey in life. And, and what I do recognize is that I didn't understand where I was. And so what I, I then, with the guidance of one of our really valuable trustees, Donna Gurney, who's a clinical psychologist, um, she was the first to sit with, you know, get down with, sit down with me and say, Mark, these resources, they're great, they're helpful, but actually what people need to do, and hopefully they're um, clinically astute enough to realize they need to know and understand themselves there are very many, you know, several really well-validated triaging tools that yeah. they as clinical psychologists use on anxiety and burnout and stress um, and PTSD and low mood and suicidal thoughts, etc. We need to provide those for your profession, um, the market, the community to understand where they are on their journey. And so what we then did with Donna's guidance was to create these triage tools and put them on the BetterMind website, um, so people can access uh, them there. They're entirely confidential and anonymous. They're anonymous because we don't collect the data about the people. Um, And to enable people to work out where they are on their journey, maybe at the start of their shift, maybe at the end of the week, wherever it is, to see where they are. And it's the morbidity, it's this this iceberg below the water of those particular conditions and then come up with a numerical score that's not a diagnosis, but an indication of where you are on that journey. And then if you are perhaps at the low end of um, anxiety, what could you do um, to help yourself self-directed care? And again, go back to the app, look at um, some of the resources that are there, or um, take up some of these, um, uh, resor- these activities like mindfulness, or if you score a bit higher, maybe go and see your GP. It's not an admission of failure. Mental ill health um, is uh, invisible, as you've said. And, uh, or go and say, actually, to your GP, I'm really, really not coping. I need some additional talking help and maybe some uh, medications. Um, and, and worst of all, um, is if, if someone really is at a, at a very, very low point, somebody you know, taking you to A&E so that you don't do yourself um, and, and, and ultimately take your life. And those tools can be used repeatedly and enable you to understand where you are. And I actually think that the real issue, and Jason Spendelow at Harper & Keel was very interesting the other day, 
um, we're beginning to work with with him as well. Um, he thinks it's an occupational health issue uh, in our profession, um, yeah. uh, as well as some of the uh, personality types that are in us. We are. Um, uh, we need to address those. And I got myself in trouble because I didn't manage to see that I needed time off. The work ethic and the practice. Peter Roster was the most amazing man, and the rest of those partners. Um, and they just were happy to carry on doing um, uh, their the practice work and the client was king. That's fine for them, but perhaps some of us, and maybe this was me and I didn't realize it, um, was that I had a vulnerability because of my father's early death that I hadn't appreciated before. Mm. And it can come out later in life without you realizing it. And one example would be I saw a... Um, picture, and some of you may have seen this on, on Facebook because I posted it, um, about a, um, uh, 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 the uh, aura, the um, Northern Lights appeared over Bury St Edmunds uh, earlier this year. And uh, one of my friends, um, photographic friends, photographed it and posted it on social media. It's quite unusual in Bury St Edmunds. And somebody went up to this lady and said, um, Jackie, you know, you may not know it, but somebody where in that village where those northern lights were appearing, um, their fa the father of the family uh, died of a brain tumour last week. And uh, when he died, it was that day. Would you feel like going around and seeing the family and maybe taking that photo and um, and, and sharing it with them? And Jackie just sort of, I don't know, okay, um, I'll, all right, I'll if you think that would help. And so she knocked on the door and saw the, um, the, the wife a widow and the two little children were, were there. He was 10 and, and the other daughter. And um, the boy took one look at the picture when Jackie was telling the story and said, that's daddy, daddy's going to heaven, right? Mm. Well, I was reading this story at quarter past six in, in uh, Minding My Own Business. Um, and I was reading this story on Facebook and I just, this is 50 years later, 50 years. I had, and I just erupted with tears total emotional outburst where the hell had that been and 50 years later it comes back and bites you my wife came past the bathroom and said are you okay and i said can't talk now but i'll be out <laughs> shortly i was completely astonished the crochet hook if any of you know about um knitting had gone through my chain mail and given me a huge yank um and it was wonderful to have let that out but I had no idea that I still got that pain and that experience sitting there. And so many of our things in our life, we don't realize the vicarious trauma of the mm. patients that we are seeing and the stories, the emotional stories of people and their animals and what those animals mean to them. Um, is and, and that's to me why I became a vet, was the importance and the therapeutic value of the human-animal bond. It was sitting there waiting to, to come out and, and I think part of the, the real impact of what we do with, uh, with, with the care of animals that we look after is that vicarious trauma does have an impact on us. But it also, the flip side of that, the two-edged sword is doing, and the picture you can probably see in the background of my, our middle daughter and Toffee Cat, um, is the stroking, the, the unconditional love, the, the, the response we get back from the animals that we care for. And, and, and I think, um, perhaps weirdly, but I do believe it, that actually by us contacting our patients when we're treating them, when we're examining them, enables us to release some of this emotional 
stuff that we otherwise carry around and, as a burden. Um, and I, I really uh, believe that our profession is somehow impacted by the vicarious trauma and the other things that we're dealing with, um, the imperfections of uh, death and illness when we actually want to cure people. Um, and because we're bright and super, we have a, and told that the whole time, we have a fixed mindset that actually means that if something goes wrong, having been beautiful, handsome, bright, superb, etc., when a catastrophe happens, we therefore flip and think we're useless and hopeless. And if we had a growth mindset, as um, uh, Carol Dwight uh, identified, and we realized that we were working hard on a case and that we were trying to do the right thing and, you know, verbs and things mm. that uh, in, in the description, look it up if, if people aren't familiar, it's a really powerful concept. If we had more of a growth mindset, if we are able to experience and, and be signposted appropriately to where we can get um, appropriate help, having triaged ourselves or colleagues, and this, it may well need you to sit down with a friend, colleague, contact, and these tools are out there for you to use in, in whatever context it is. It doesn't have to be veterinary it, on Vets in Mind Alliance. It, it's absolutely there for you to find out where you are in these, uh, on this journey of life and, and yeah. to signpost you to where you can get your ex, that extra help that, that could keep you functioning as a, as a, as a clinician, as a, a good member of the family and your community and enjoying a bit of life. Um, rather than hating what you're doing, because that just is going to get you nowhere um, and be a real waste of the training and facilities and um, expertise that you definitely have as a veterinarian. Are you seeking the ultimate resource to elevate your practice and empower your staff? Introducing VetLexicon, the world's largest online veterinary reference resource, written and peer-reviewed by over 1,000 of the world's leading veterinary experts. With over 27,000 pieces of essential information at your fingertips, Feel empowered with accurate, reliable and easily accessible content to enhance your patient care and support you and your team. Available whether you're in the clinic or out in the field. Join thousands of satisfied subscribers from around the world by taking a free 14-day trial. Visit vetlexicon.com and explore today. So I think we're in a very privileged situation. You know, in the UK, we're in one of, whether we've slipped a bit late, lately and in different areas, but we live in one of the best countries in the world. Um, we're probably in the top five to 10% of the world population for resource, et cetera, et cetera. And I think sometimes I've found being grateful for what we have also, um, you know, I was lucky enough to do the job I wanted to do from when I was eight and did it for 25 years. If we have a positive mindset, if we have gratitude, then that allows us to sometimes cope with things if they aren't quite so good because we realize on balance that there's a lot of positive things going on. And I think for myself personally, although I've had difficult times, uh, being a man of hope is also um, has helped me to get through some of those difficult times as well because it's it's always a dark, you know, before the dawn comes, but the dawn mm. does come. Um my my football team has a famous anthem from Carousel called "You'll Never Walk Alone," and I, I, it may sound a bit twee, but when we can uh, go to other friends and and share problems, and also have that attitude, which is there is always somebody 
perhaps a bit worse off than I am, it can also help. I, you know, it's not the solution to everything. Obviously, some people have uh, chemical imbalances, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I found for myself personally that gratitude is a is a great tool for getting through difficult times. If you're able to um, understand and appreciate that, Anthony, I agree with you. Yeah. But the tragedy is, and I've seen this, and um, in in a number of uh, folk that I, I, who I count as friends and contacts, and is that they don't, you don't realise where you are. And this is the other yeah. thing about mental ill health is that you don't realise that you've got a broken leg, or that you've yes. you know you've got some of these other issues because you don't recognise that in yourself. Exactly. You might recognise in other people that he's a bit weird at the moment or you know something else but i'm fine um yeah. and uh and you don't recognize it so the, the you know the self-belief stuff the self-esteem um and you know being thankful and things is fine if you if you're you have the ability to be able to do that but in my situation i just didn't give a damn about anyone else mm. um and i was really in not a good place i wasn't i'm sure a very easy person to be around i wasn't functioning properly um, yeah. I'm sure I'd have been pushed out of the practice if I'd stayed any longer. Um, and I was a problem child, um, whereas I, I was probably, you know, a pretty capable functioning member of the clinical team when I first started there. But we have to yeah. give ourselves boundaries. We have to give ourselves space. We have to recognize our personality types. And I'm very grateful in the same way that you described, Anthony, of understanding what sort of person I was many vets are absolutely happy mm. doing the sort of regular tasks in and, and love that process and love going through that and it really works for them it did my head in um without me yeah. realizing it and i didn't know what i was and, and yeah. the same way i didn't realize that i was in a bad place um and so the thing i would just give as a plea to people is don't have any shame about asking for help Please don't realize that it's, uh, please realize that it's not going to impact your career by you mm. going to see your GP or to talk to a friend or your dog, um, if it's uh, at a certain level, or your cat or wherever it is, or your spouse. But please don't sit and, and get, allow yourself to slip down that slippery slope because it will get you um, into mm. more trouble. Whereas if you step forwards and go, actually, I'm not sure. It took, by the way, it took me about three or four years to go and get professional help. I, I realized sooner that I needed to leave um, being in, in practice, but it took me longer to realize I needed professional help to unlock some of the yeah. stuff. But then, as I've just said in the story earlier, 50 years later, I get some emotional outburst from looking at a photograph and reading a story about something. And sometimes it's music yeah. for people. Sometimes it's a smell. But there's lots that we don't understand about what goes on upstairs in our heads. And, you know, it, it takes a lot to realize what is going on there because so much of it is invisible and we disguise it. We're heroes, don't forget. You, you said it earlier, Anthony, you, were a, you identified as a star. Lots of vets love the, the prestige and the, and, the, and the role that they play in people's lives. So I'm a hero, there's nothing wrong with me. Um, uh, and my wife has the phrase, which I will clean up a little bit. But um, when people say I'm fine, um, uh, you can imagine the letter, um, the first letter, which I won't repeat, um, insecure, yes. neurotic and emotional um, is her definition of I'm fine. Um, and it's it's the truth. Um, you know, we, we have this 
proud, stiff upper lip. We're British. We're we're heroes. We're capable. Um, yeah, you are. But at the same time, we have a lot of vulnerability, and it's not wokey. It's not. It's not. We're not being yeah. wet. We're not and you can break as well. Just understanding where we are and what we are, and that's the that's the truth. And we're fallible. And and if we seek help, then we'll be able to enjoy the the limited time we have on this lovely planet if we look after it properly and we look after ourselves as well. I think you're right, Mark. And I think also the, the key in your story is do what you love. And sometimes you need to find out exactly what that is. But if you're not yep. enjoying your job and you spend so much time in it, then that's not healthy. I mean, there are lots of people in the world who are doing jobs that they don't like. And sometimes yep. it's because that's the only job they can get. But as a vet, as you've said, we've got and nurses, we have that ability to do other things. We don't have to be just clinicians. So no, it no. is having that uh, ability to be able to look around and, and to look after yourselves. And I think doing what you love is a, is a huge part of that. And then it doesn't feel quite so burdensome if you are doing longer hours, if it's something that you're really passionate about. But you have to take the, you know, I've since again discovered my three passions of um, fishing, trout fishing, mm. uh, photography and beekeeping. Now, yeah. um, you know, those things keep me um, in a good place. And I know yeah. that and I've got friends I do it with, but at the same time, I'm quite often doing it on my own. Um, and I love that uh, combination and that keeps me OK. We need to be given the opportunity of the time to pursue our interests, whatever they are. Um, yeah. And and know that it's really important we have outside interests, but many people don't, as you say, Anthony, in parts of the world, they just, all they can do is that, and the expectations yeah. of their family, um, and some of my trust, one of my trustees, a lovely lady, Navisha Shergill, in, in, uh, comes from um, Indonesia, um, said, you know, the expectations on her um, are massive to uh, continue succeeding and to, um, and, and to lead the family and support it. And the expectations on her are just, that's too much. Um, and one of the things I really value about my trustees that we've got within the group, and we, as I say, we've got um, uh, um, um, Donna Gurney, is a clinical psychologist, um, Ivan Zak, who's a really interesting uh, leader of a practice group in, in the States, yeah. uh, um, and Canada Galaxy Vets, the Sheedy Gardner, who runs a really good coaching program and, and uh, senior in the Royal College and has come from South Africa in, um, into um, a, a, an unusual um, uh, cattle practice in Cornwall from, with her background as she was. Vicky Robinson, well-known um, practice management and, and vet dynamics. And Steve Curtin, who's not a vet, but has been very involved in the communications, marketing and communications aspects of um, veterinary medicine. I've got a huge range of genders and um, racial background, um, with Shidi coming from South Africa and um, Ivan coming from the Ukraine with his Ukrainian background and, um, and Donna coming from the Philippines. Um, and then an age range as well, Navisha as a student, all the way through to um, old guys like me. Um, it's really important to have different uh, views. Yeah. And that's happened by serendipity. It wasn't, I didn't go looking for that group of diverse uh, folk. It just happens, and I'm so grateful that they have because they just give you a completely different view of where you know the the project, the opportunity, and what we need to be doing. Um, and I think one of the words that's missing in our lives at the moment is respect. 
and and what I really think we you know is is we just we just need to respect individuals, people, the roles they play, um, and in our lives as 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 family members, friends, colleagues, and and I think we're we're too easy to point the finger or not recognise the the impact and the and the contribution that they're having, and I would and the politicians aren't helping. They're behaving like you know they're not even behaving like school children. They're behaving like idiots. Um, uh, school children are, are, are learning, and and um, politicians should have learned by now. And, and and it's really disappointing the role models that they have had. And I really want us as members of our profession to um, to enjoy what we're doing and respect each other and enjoy our life on this on this lovely planet while we can. Mark, that's fantastic. Thank you so much, and thanks for all the great work you're doing at uh, Vets in mind which is obviously a not-for-profit um and just yeah continue and we we all need to make a difference and as you said at the end respect and be kind uh, do unto others as you would have done unto yourself is correct is not a bad correct. rule to have in life well no and it's and it actually is i mean if you look at all of the faiths in this in this on this world that's one of the fundamentals whatever you believe in or don't believe in and there are plenty that have different views and one again i respect those um, is just you know just be be grateful because um, life's a bit easier and better if if you are um, and my last plea I guess is that if there are things that um, listeners uh, and and others think that would be helpful for us to do in with the vets in mind project please contact me via the website and any of the social accounts um, uh, because we're here to try and fill a, a gap in the jigsaw as vet as you said vet life are doing an incredible job with what they're doing mind matters the avma are doing their things in america and so are the australians lots of different initiatives not one my vet uh, not one my vet um and there's there is a big jigsaw and where um we can step in is to try and complement what those projects are doing um and try and help um our market our community um, the veterinary community, um, it plays an enormous role in in life. Um, I'd love to have seen what, what might have happened with COVID if more members of the veterinary community had been involved in key decision-making relating to that, because we've got a bit of experience in infectious diseases and the way that should be managed. And, and, and I think if we're able to function better as a community, as people within it, um, uh, then... Uh, and, and that's where Vets in Mind is trying to fit in. It's trying to complement the other and, and share the workload and signpost people to where they can get the help that they may not realise they need, um, but it's there if they if people just have the courage, perhaps even holding the hand of a friend or colleague to take those first steps together, but to get that help and um, and, and then live a better life as a result. Mark, thank you so much. I know how busy you are, so I really appreciate your time. Uh, thanks everyone for listening. Yeah. Hope to hear you or see you all or listen or have you all on a, a podcast very soon. So thanks very much again, Mark. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Mm-hmm.